Good morning, church. Good singing. Thank you to the women's choir today, too. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. You may not know there is such a book named Zephaniah in the Bible. Don't be afraid to look at the page number, 788, in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. Or look at your table of comment and contents, this little minor prophet three chapters tucked into the end of the Old Testament. We've been studying these books in chronological order as they have occurred. They were written uh, centuries before the birth of Christ. This one over 600 years before Christ, after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria. And now the southern kingdom is being threatened by Babylon. And that southern kingdom is called Judah. And God continued to send for hundreds more years. He continued to send prophets to his people, uh, uh, prophesying to them warnings if they did not turn back to him, turn their hearts back to him, to pursue him in real worship, to submit their lives and every part of their lives to him in faithfulness. Here is Zephaniah, who has a, a rare biography printed about him in the first uh, verse, a fourth generation royalty, descendant of Hezekiah, that uh, Judah had a few good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah were two of them. Hezekiah uh, stood down the mighty king Sennacherib of Assyria just with prayer. Zephaniah is descended from him. Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh who was a wicked man who sacrificed even his own children to the god Molech, who is alluded to in, our, in, our, uh, in this book. Manasseh repented in the very last days, but for most of Zephaniah's ministry, he would have been preaching in a very terrifying age, a very disappointing age, calling on the people of God to repent, warning them of coming day of judgment and expressing, as we will see in these three chapters, expressing ultimately the tough but tender love of God. Tough but tender love. That's another uniqueness of Zephaniah's book, that every bit of bad news is mirrored with good news within just a few verses or a chapter. He rebukes the evil king and says, I'm going to give you a good king. I'm going to bring judgment against you, but I'm going to bring peace. You are going to, your name is going to be obliterated, but I'm going to raise your name up again. Every bit of good news is count, every bit of bad news is countered by good news. You have to hear the bad news and respond to it in order to appreciate fully the good news of God's tough but tender love. With expectation to hear afresh the gospel of Christ from this Old Testament book, we Begin reading in verse 1 of Zephaniah 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 7. 
Be silent before the Lord your God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Verse 17, I'll bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, would you open our eyes that we would behold convicting, converting things from your word, that we may before the end of this message be freshly encouraged or convicted and freshly saved that none would leave here without seeking the Lord for the eternal source of righteousness in Jesus Christ alone. We pray it in his strong name, all God's people said together, amen. A couple of days ago, I visited my dad who is... Uh, in the hospital and struggling at 92. Uh, he's had a stroke a few months ago and he is now only able to say four words. One is no. No to any healthy food, any green vegetable that gets near him. He can muster a strong no and purse his lips. You're not getting that green bean in his mouth. And three other words, I love you. What a blessing to have at least those three words, I love you. And when he said those to me a couple of days ago, I thought about the ways he has loved me so well and my brothers and my, and my children and my wife. Uh, but the very first evidence of his love for me, was the remembrance of this event. It, it uh, helped me to remember it because the event that occurred occurred with my best friend at the time, who is now a pastor as well, and I got to see him this past week as he came in town for the PCA's General Assembly. I thought first, here is the way I know that my dad has loved me well. Here's the setup for it. We lived on a slough of the Pickwick of Pickwick Lake off the Tennessee River and 
I had a canoe, a 15-foot canoe, and my mother bought some outriggers for that canoe so my friend Andrew and I could stand up in the canoe and fish. We could fish up and down. We could go anywhere we wanted to in that slough, but we were never to go outside the slough because the slough ran in directly into the channel of the Tennessee River where there was heavy barge traffic. Makes good sense. Don't go outside the channel, but outside the slough. But I thought as we got these new outriggers, I'd watched Hawaii Five-0. I saw people paddling these canoes out in the ocean with these outriggers on it. This thing is perfectly seaworthy, and we can go out there in the channel. In fact, they're releasing water. Makes the water even higher. Runs a little faster. That's okay. We're stable. It'll get us that much closer to the caves that we like to visit. There was a, a trail, kind of a secret trail that we could track down, and then we can climb down into these caves and find arrowheads and so forth. But uh, getting to it from the water was impossible unless the water was really high. Perfect conditions. So we decided, in all of our infinite wisdom, to go out of the slough into the main channel, running along with the barges, no problem, up and down, fun waves, made our way to the cave. We had climbed up into the cave and, and uh, we were there exploring and sitting with our feet hanging out like Tom and Huck. And uh, then my friend Andrew said, did you hear something? I said, uh, no, I didn't hear you. He said, it sounds like your motorcycle. It can't be my motorcycle. My motorcycle's back at the house. No, it sounds exactly like your motorcycle. Did you hear something else? No, I didn't hear anything else. It sounded like, George, George. No, I didn't hear that. I also hear him saying, Andrew, Andrew. The motorcycle sounds get closer and closer and closer. The names become more and more distinct. And the angry tone, very, very clear. I said, who else? knows about this trail. Oh, my dad. George, get up here. I said, Andrew, you go first. (laughs) Andrew refused to go. So I climb up the rock face and my dad's face is here. Clip on tie, flying behind him. He had just ridden on in my motorcycle, my motorcycle. Seething with anger blood red face I told you never to leave that slough I can't believe you disobeyed me it's the most dangerous thing you could ever do and it will never happen again get home there's only one way to get home back in the canoe but it was downstream got there he was waiting for us again seething with anger Now, why did I think of that story as an example of how much my father loved me? I'm now a father. What an irresponsible, what a a rebellious, what a foolish thing to do to risk our lives to do something so dumb. If my dad didn't love me, he wouldn't care. But the passion of his love was revealed in that anger. He couldn't bear the thought of living without me. He wanted me to stay safe.
Sometimes people think the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, is a grumpy old God. There are plenty of passages in the New Testament that could reflect a grumpy old God, too, if you want to think of him that way. But that's far from the truth. What Zephaniah and the other prophets represent is a passionately loving heavenly father. When he sees us engage in, the, in, the, in, the, in these things that are self-destructive, that are dehumanizing, that are ultimately damning, he is going to be passionate and seething in anger and say, what are you doing? Come back to me. This is tough but tender love. Now God begins that tough love in verses Uh, 2 through 18 by saying to all these proud and self-righteous and self-secured self-indulgent people he's saying to them there is no place for you to hide there's no place you can go and escape my judgment unless you yield to me you can expect the coming day of the Lord which has smaller uh, iterations, smaller manifestations through history as warnings, but they're all warning of the great day of judgment that is coming when every soul will be gathered before the judgment seat of Christ and judged on whether or not they are hidden in the righteousness of Christ or not. And so he exposes all of their insufficient places of, uh, for havens. He says in verse 4, you can't go to any place, even if it's a sacred place like Jerusalem. You can't add anything to supplement trust in me, to protect you from me, verses 5 and 6. You can't rely on luck, verse 9, jumping over the threshold and so forth, a superstitious practice. You can't rely even on the sacrifices I have prescribed as acts of response to my grace. You can't rely on those sacrifices to save you from my judgment. You can't rely on complacency, verse 12, thinking, I don't know what will happen. It'll all work out in the end. And you cannot, this is especially what they were trusting in, verses 10 and 11, 13 and 18, trusting in financial plans, hedging against future risks, Real estate holdings. Nothing will protect you from my wrath if you're trusting anything but me. And you cannot endure the judgment that I'm going to bring. A judgment that will be eternal and terrifying. Some people try to comfort themselves, actually comfort themselves in a strange way with annihilation. As if when, when Christ comes and judges the world and sends those who have not trusted him to hell, that they will quickly be extinguished and they'll never suffer again. That's far from the biblical picture of what's going to happen to those who are looking for any haven outside of Jesus Christ. Verses 14 to 17, those, he says, who are mocking my name now, holding up their fists against me, saying, I've got this. I'm going to take care of this on my own. You will be eternally humiliated. And verses 2 and 18, description of the fiery wrath of God, the fire of his jealousy will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. The promise of hell 
is even on the lips of Jesus who said in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worm never dies out. The fire is never quenched. You know, I look at passages like this the week I'm supposed to preach them and I think, you know, can't you have something happier for me to share with the people? But that's one thing about preaching through books, chapter by chapter, it keeps us all accountable. That, that uh, we must endure, we must engage in these tough words of warning. Uh, because if they're, if they're not heard, if they're not heeded, if you continue on in your blind trust of self and, and uh, your complacency, then I, I can't bear the thought of you standing at the judgment seat someday turning back and saying, Preacher, why did you give us chicken soup for the soul? Why did you entertain us and tell us uh, stories week after week that made us just feel good for the week? But you never warned us that judgment is coming if we did not trust in Christ. If you're in the sound of my voice, I must by the commission of Jesus Christ, compel you to come in before it's too late. You could die this afternoon and the next second is appointed at an end to die once and then comes judgment. How will you meet him? Don't wait to the end of this message. Don't wait to an altar call. Don't wait to talk to me sometime this week or another pastor. You can receive him this very second. Ask him, cry out to him this second, Lord Jesus, save me. Robe me in your righteousness. Equip me to meet you in that great day. It's important not only to visit the Bible's doctrine it's teaching on judgment because it is important to repent and turn back from your sins and rest in his mercy alone. But it is also important for Christians, even Christians living in fellowship with the Lord to remember the good news of the judgment. Not good news that we believe smugly and say, if only these wicked people out there would believe it. They deserve it, not in any way, but rather seeing ourselves also as deserving of that judgment, but taking comfort in the idea that someday God is going to put to an end all wickedness, all violence, all evil, all pain, all disease. How could we live day by day? How could we live with any hope if there's no confidence that God is a just God and will someday make all things right and even in the meantime gives us visitations of judgment and justice, pictures of justice that keep us encouraged for the great day of perfect justice to come. The great, the great um, historian Herbert Butterfield said on one occasion in one lecture that that God has woven a judgment into the fabric of human history. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of history bends toward justice. How could they say things like that except that it is true that God reminds us on occasion 
frequently that he is a God of justice. It's not perfect now. We could say, why is it not happening right now in this situation for my, for my satisfaction? But we can look over history and say it does happen. And it happens with enough regularity that we can be confident that the judgment day is coming. Think back at the, at the great tyrants and despots of the past who declared themselves to be gods even. Caesar and Herod the Great. Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan. Think about, uh, think about Nikolai Ceausescu or Slobodan Milosevic or, or Idi Amin or Bokassa. Think, think, of the, think of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Think of the end of slavery in this country as we celebrate tomorrow. Think of the end of Jim Crow laws. Think of the access to, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, health and human services that have, that have come as a result of advocacy of Christians. All of these things are manifestation that God is in control. That someday there will be an end to Vladimir Putin. Whether it's an end in battle or whether it's an end in his death, he will not reign in tyranny forever. Why? Because God, the God of all the earth, will do right. I read once a great Old Testament scholar named Ochtmeier, a German, obviously, who had heard about a sermon that was preached in, uh, by a British pastor in England in 1939. That British pastor said, preached a sermon in which he paired Zephaniah 1-2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He paired that against John 3-16. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, it is no doubt which of these is from our God and which is not. Only John 3.16 is from our Savior, this kind and loving offer of salvation. This promise to sweep away sin from the face of the earth, that can't be from our loving God. She said he was preaching that. 1939, even as across the channel, as a corruption of the Christian faith, Hitler was preaching Nazism. He was rising. And she said, what comfort would there have been in his message as opposed to the whole of the biblical message that God would someday sweep Hitler off the face of the earth? You must know the doctrine of judgment and justice, not only to repent, but you must know it as a believer for your encouragement, for your comfort, that this world as it is right now this day is not the way it is going to be forever. The judge of all the earth will do right. What do you do in the meantime? If there is no hiding place, where do you go? Well, later in chapter 3, he will talk about finding your refuge in God alone. The psalmist says in Psalm 17, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Jesus alluded to that text and others like it. 
when he weeps over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You have killed the prophets my father has sent to you. Judgment is coming. But that offer is there. That if you come to Christ, whether you've done that before and you're running away from him, or whether you've never done it before, you come to Christ and say, take away my sins and cover me with your righteousness. You will find shelter now and into eternity in his righteousness alone. But Zephaniah doesn't leave us there very long. He turns quickly in chapter 2 to the gracious offer of a welcoming God. You notice in chapter 1, verse, uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, gather together, yes, gather a shameless nation before the decree takes effect, before the day passes, before there comes upon you, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. You hear it? God is warning. He commands you to seek him while he may be found. He's holding back his final judgment, giving time for people to repent, giving time for people to come to Christ, giving time for us to to share our faith and compel others to come. This is the gracious God. If he were that grumpy, cruel tyrant that he's often caricatured to be he would have ended this world a long time ago but he has allowed it to endure for thousands and thousands and thousands of years giving time to repent that he might gather before his throne someday a host of people no one can count seek him before it's too late seek his righteousness you see that in verse three seek righteousness now, this, this, uh, this word seek that occurs a couple of times in verse 3 is a, a word that often describes the act of worship. Come to worship, he's saying in effect. Go to church, seek the Lord, and there you will find the message of righteousness. Not the righteousness that you'll earn by going to church, but righteousness because there is the message of the gospel. Seek him in worship, and this is what you'll find. You're unholy, he is holy. You're weak, he is strong. You can't protect yourself, he can protect all. And that is the righteousness that he clothes you with in Christ. Seek him. And when you seek him in worship, when, you are, when that reset button is pushed every week, as we read about in Psalm 73, when you do, I had almost lost my way. My foot had almost slipped. Then I came into the sanctuary and God adjusted my thinking, put me back in line. That's what happens every week. He pushes the reset button. When we, when we, get, we get him before us, His righteousness, the righteousness of his ways, confidence in his reliability. Then we leave this place wanting to imitate him. We imitate him by doing his just commands, pursuing righteousness, pursuing justice, obeying him in gratitude. 
seek him, he says, not only for his righteousness, but seek him in humility. What does humility look like? It's explained by the little word that follows, perhaps. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of anger. We don't come presumptuously before God. Yes, we come initially and when we are converted, we come recognizing I have nothing to offer, nothing by which to commend myself. I deserve nothing but your wrath. That's easy enough for us to understand. But we also must understand that's the way we continually come to him. That when we come into worship, into the holy presence of God, we don't look this way and that way. And say, I hope they're hearing that. Or I'm going to send a recording of this to so-and-so. They really need it. But rather, woe is me. Like a prophet said, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. It's not that we come doubting our, our, doubting our, uh, our salvation, but rather we come in humility. You do not owe me forgiveness and mercy, O oh Lord. Perhaps you would save me from the day of anger. I don't deserve it. Righteousness, seek it and seek it humbly. I was thinking about this, this phenomenon of <clears throat> turning the page and preaching what is there. And, and, and sometimes it's like last week and it was, it was uh, uh, all such beautiful news from the final chapter of Hosea. And then you turn the chapter and here is some, some hard to swallow news, always, of course, with the assurance of the gospel. But that, that regular plodding through scripture that reminds us of our father's tough but tender love saying, not this way, but that way. I want you to walk in the ways of life. And I thought about the faithful preaching from this pulpit for our many years of existence. And how it's benefited my family and particularly my father, again, as I'm reflecting on his life just a couple of days ago. My dad, who, who was so afraid of death when I was a little boy, when my dad, who would, who would flame with anger if I brought up the gospel or somebody else was pressing it into his heart, he was terrified unsettled by it, chose to go to a church that only gave him chicken soup for the soul every week. When I left to go to college, I thought there's no way he's going to come to Christ because I won't be there to witness to him. But when I was away at college, God moved my parents to Corinth, Mississippi. And there was a broadcast from Second Presbyterian Church. And there was a pastor named John R. DeWitt, or as my dad pronounced it, DeWitt. Now he was, my predecessor was Sandy Wilson, and his predecessor was Dr. DeWitt, or as Dr. DeWitt with his big vocabulary would have said, my penultimate predecessor. And I thought... 
I loved Dr. DeWitt, loved listening to him, loved reading his books, but I thought my dad will never get saved now because he can't understand the words. He won't understand the concepts. He's always so deep. I came home from college and he said, you've got to listen to this preacher from Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. DeWitt. I thought, oh my goodness, maybe you should find Adrian Rogers. Maybe you should tune into somebody else. No, I love Dr. DeWitt. Every week he'd tell me what he had learned, what he had heard as he went through passage after passage. Good news, bad news, good news, bad news. And then Sanders Wilson. You listen to him for 20 years. Again, through passages of scripture. What did you learn today, Dad? Oh, we talked about the Jebusites and the Hittites and the termites. You know, like Sandy talked about. Oh, he needs to be preaching about something else for my dad to hear it. You know, my dad was saved. My dad grew. Even while he was attending a church that did not preach the scriptures, he grew by that broadhead, by the faithful preaching of God's word week by week by week. Nothing, not the preaching that tickles the ear and entertains, but preaching from God's word in God's providence as the text unfolds. So that I can look my 92-year-old dad in the face a couple of, week, a couple of days ago. And he's not afraid to die. And his words are, I love you. Don't turn your back on what you hear. The faithful preaching and teaching of God's word morning and evening. As it's brought to you this day and perhaps for many years. Today is the day of salvation if you have not yet bowed the knee. And today is the day of freshly discovering God's grace, even if you've known it your whole life. This is the tough but tender love of the Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you seek us with your Holy Spirit And working by and with the word in our hearts, you conform us to the image of Christ. Please save according to your will. Restore according to your will. Refresh according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.